This is the Drop Down Lounge podcast, a conversation around living cross-culturally in the 21st century. And I'm your host, Naomi Johnston. Welcome to season one. Today's guest, Martin Campbell, co-leads a college alongside his wife, Joyce, where they equip future missionaries on how to adapt and work well in different cultures. Martin thinks that one of the keys to being successful in cross-cultural encounters is appreciating where you're coming from, knowing that story, but not thinking it's superior to the story you're going to. What a beautiful way to lay out what today's podcast is all about. Martin and I chat about some of the insights he's learnt while on a journey from Ireland through London, Glasgow, Afghanistan, and ultimately ending up here in New Zealand, where he currently resides with his wife Joyce and his three sons. So, Martin, tell us a little about your journey from Ireland all the way over here to New Zealand. Okay, long journey, mm-hmm. long distance, um, and a long time ago, really, because I haven't lived in Ireland probably for 30 years now. So I left um, in my 20s and via London and Glasgow and Afghanistan and here. And that's been a journey. First, I, joined, I became a nurse, so I, I worked in that, the hospital work hospital work. I then became a Christian while I was working with cancer patients. Um, I'm trying to do this really quickly um, because it's a long journey. And then um, I wanted to take that combination of faith and helping people into some of the more needy contexts of the world. So I worked in Romania for a little bit. I worked with refugees in Greece for a little bit and ultimately went to work in a hospital in Afghanistan and lived there with my family, uh, my wife Joyce and our three boys, um, for 12 years. And uh, during that time, we were invited to come and teach at this college in New Zealand. And I really didn't like the idea, to be honest. I, I really, really didn't like the idea. It wasn't, I wasn't indifferent to it. I didn't want to come to New Zealand because New Zealand markets itself is this wonderful Pacific Island getaway and there was nothing in me wanted to get away. I wanted to stay involved. Mm-hmm. And the thought of coming here felt like just a getaway. <laughs> and so I did, I struggled for quite a while on that one. And um, eventually through prayer and through some really random sort of encounters, kind of bizarre encounters while we were on holiday in Turkey, meeting somebody who didn't even know we were asked to do this, who started talking about this college in New Zealand. I mean. People in New Zealand don't even know of Gordonton. And this random stranger in Turkey is talking to me about Gordonton. And I'm looking. And it was just lots of things along the way. It said, actually, this is right. And it was right to come in this direction. And yeah, this is now our seventh year this time. And we've been three years before. So yeah, I, I guess I've I've got a little bit of my heart now in Aotearoa. It's mm. now a bit of home. Oh, that's good. And it's not the getaway you thought it was going to be? Oh, let's be honest, it is a bit. I mean, I think we'd be we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say it isn't a bit. Take we drive up the Carmandel or um, almost anywhere in New Zealand and you realise it is a bit of a getaway. But it's a getaway with people. And the people here is always what's mattered to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, the, the Maori Whakatoki, where you talk about hey tangata, hey tangata, hey tangata, what's important is the people. Um, and so connecting with people here, yep. Okay, it's a beautiful location, but it's still full of people. Mm. And it's the people I've enjoyed connecting with. Oh, that's good. Um, so what has uh, been one of the biggest cultural differences that you faced here in New Zealand that uh, maybe you hadn't faced in other countries before? Okay, um, I guess 
what jumps to mind? I mean, this egalitarian society that is New Zealand, and, and that's not a criticism. New Zealand prides itself on an egalitarian society. It's quite different to lead in an egalitarian society than it is to lead in other contexts. So sort of in a leadership role, um, you realise the leadership role is a sort of get down and dirty kind of role in New Zealand, where it isn't in Afghanistan. It wouldn't have been appreciated um, if I tried to do dishes in Afghanistan or if I didn't wear a suit and tie in Afghanistan. So in a leadership role there, it's it's a much... There's a much stronger, let's say, power distance. Mm-hmm. Um, here, there's uh, there's an aspiration anyway of no power distance. In some places, a negative power distance. You can sort of feel like there's a lot expected of the leader. Sometimes it isn't even expected of others. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't mean this context in the college here, but other places I've seen that. Right, and that, that was your biggest uh, challenge or struggle? I, I guess the biggest struggle is me figuring out where I am. Mm. It's not a criticism of where I am. It's the disconnect between me and where I am. Mm. So I had that in London. I had that in Glasgow. I had that in Afghanistan. And you have to figure out your context. Where am I? How do people here think? How do they perceive how I'm doing things? And how can I adjust that to sort of to get the greatest benefit of the relationships, the working relationships and the social relationships and whatever other relationships. Oh, that's so good because I think the people who have the most beneficial experiences are the ones that go in um, being willing to change or adapt to the environment. I think uh, in New Zealand, when we see people come to New Zealand who, who, who immediately see the differences and then want to say what is good about how they do things, mm-hmm. It is quite hard, especially in our the way we do things with leadership and with everyone kind of having equal footing, uh, to listen to what that person has to say when when they think that their way is better. Um, so yeah, that's cool that you would have got some insight into that. I mean, the same will be true of any New Zealander moving anywhere else. Yeah. They'll have, I mean, it, it it's all just perspectives, and you're shifting around and trying to figure out what does the thing look like from the perspective I'm in rather than the perspective I've come from. And that's always a journey and it's always a, an interesting journey mm-hmm. on the good days and it's a frustrating journey on the bad days and you're going to have bad days. I mean, that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel that that um, really fed into your identity? Like, how did you manage to keep your identity as an Irishman that had done all these different things that was now living in New Zealand learning to adapt? Yeah, that, that is interesting. It's really interesting. I think the longer I go on, the more Irish I get. <laughs> in a strange way um, is that I, at my reference points of my childhood and of my family um, growing up in in Belfast uh, and it's not just an Irish identity it's an Irish identity from within conflict because we had our own little war going on um, I say little but it was, a, it was a significant conflict that we had for 30 years and that was form- formative in my own identity so I guess the longer I reflect on that and I use the experiences I've had to help me connect, it helped me connect in Afghanistan, well, particularly on the conflict side. Um, but here in New Zealand, I, I think my Irishness has helped me to connect with the story of Aotearoa, uh, the story of Māori, um, what's happened here. Um, it's certainly a story I am deeply interested in and I want it to be told. Um, warts and all. Let, let's get the story out and have the story being told. But I think my Irishness informs that because we are a storytelling 
community-based culture um, that is more similar to Maori than than it would be to even mainland Europe in some ways. Yep. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, so what has been your journey with the Maori culture in particular? Like, tell us a little about how that started and where you find yourself with it today. Mm. You can probably hear, I, I actually struggle to answer any questions here without reference to Te Ao Maori, the Maori world and the Maori worldview, because it's actually had such a big impact on me since I came here. Um, Maori have been so gracious in, in so many ways in, in storytelling and in hospitality and I'll, I'll give you one little illustration that has made a lot a big difference to me and um, it's when I was in Afghanistan I was told to stop singing now I used to sing all the time when I worked in the wards in Belfast and in London and Glasgow it was kind of my signature I just sang all day that's how I got through my day I just sang and I remember once when I went to work in Romania I was working with HIV kids there. Um, so you kind of walk in and there's the smell of, of diarrhea and urine and blah, blah, blah. And you have the awful sights of these kids and what they've been through with HIV and many of them died uh, of AIDS. And it was awful. And I remember just standing in the room thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And I really felt God say, sing. They could do with, with you bringing joy into the day and not just crying over them. So bring a song. And I just sang. I sang all day to those kids. Um, I just that was that was something I could give, and it was a way of breathing, as such. And so I got to Afghanistan, and I was told, "Don't sing. You look crazy. It's it's not culturally appropriate. You look literally bonkers if you walk around singing. You you do look like you've got something wrong with you." And so that that that's where your context can actually be abrasive to you, and you have to receive it. You can't. You can't just say, no, I'm going to do this my way. That doesn't work. I mean, you see that going from culture to culture. So when I came here to New Zealand, I had forgotten to sing through my day. Mm. I, I'd lost it. And when I and myself and Joyce started at Te Wananga Te Aroa, the night classes in Te Reo Māori, well, you start with a song, you have a song in the middle, you have a song at the end, and part of the class is teaching you a song. There was yeah. just, and, and even before the class, before you actually go into the classroom, you meet as a college and sing as well. So it was song, 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 peppered with prayer and peppered with um, classes as well. And I finally got my voice back. And for me, that is one of my huge gratitudes to Māori, that they, they have this environment that nurtures that natural ability to sing and and it's 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 song in appreciation it's song to communicate in church we sing to communicate to god but in tell maori it's more than that you're 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 singing a waiata to appreciate somebody so the song actually connects with relationship which made a lot of sense to me mm. might sound a little crazy and some people might might have lost a few people <laughs> when i say that but it does to me it meant a lot to me mm -hmm. to be to be nurtured back into singing again. So that's just one aspect of why Te Ao Māori's meant something to me. Did you find that you were able to find pockets of that in every culture that you went in where it would pull out a different part of your identity and maybe subdue a different another part? And then when you changed, there were different parts being pulled out and different parts being kind of subdued or put away for another mm. day. For instance, was there a situation in Afghanistan where you found something was encouraged that maybe hasn't been here in New Zealand? Well, I, I, I absolutely loved Afghanistan. I still do. I would go back tomorrow morning easily. Um, it's an amazing country, amazing people. 
Um, I, I guess what Afghanistan, one aspect of Afghanistan that resonated with me was that I saw resilience in people in conflict. And I'd seen that growing up in Belfast. I'd seen people go through um, bombings, shootings, witnessing murders or executions and not getting counselling and not getting support, but kept on going because you did it as a community. You weren't the only one that went through it. And it's been very interesting. I think in much of the Western world, modern Western world, we don't see much of that. And yet we actually end up with people who aren't resilient. Whereas in Afghanistan, I saw people who've been through horrendous stuff. I mean, off the scale of anything we saw in Belfast. And their resilience was just so admirable. I just, but I could see, I could see the, the, the core of that resilience in what I'd seen in Belfast because people had been through so much but they just kept on going and they didn't get, they didn't get counselling. I'm, I'm not saying counselling's bad. It just wasn't available. Mm. And people got up and kept on going and they kept their families together. They resiliently uh, persevered when they were struggling financially, when they were struggling with the security. You had bomb scares at your work. The town was closed off. Schools got closed because of bomb scares. But resilience was there. And I think that's, for me, I guess that's, something that resonated in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And how did you find that particular uh, resilience or that understanding of resilience? How did you find that when you came to New Zealand? How did that impact the way you read New Zealand culture? I guess I, I, I'll be very careful about, about summing up New Zealand. That's mm -hmm. a very dangerous thing to mm -hmm. do. I guess I'm still observing. Um, some of the questions I have and that sit with me heavily are around the youth suicide here mm -hmm. and what's going on. I don't know what's going on. I wouldn't try and sum it up, but it's a significant question that what brings what brings that to the fore? What's, what's happening there? Now, New Zealand prides itself on a kind of a can-do number eight wire. We can do anything with, you know, a cardboard box, let's build a rocket ship. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of can-do. And there's something just inspirational and wonderful about that aspect of life. But there's some underlying questions I don't know the answers to. Mm. Um, and I think New Zealanders are struggling to find the answers to those questions. So I guess that's um, that's not summing up New Zealand. It's just kind of, that's one question I've mm. gotten to. Another question I have is New, Zealand's, uh, New Zealanders often talk about tall poppy syndrome. Mm -hmm. I do think it's more complex than tall poppy. I think there's more going on than just tall poppy, but they often talk about that. Can you explain what you mean a little mm. bit by tall poppy syndrome? But just the idea of um, don't stand, don't stand too high. Don't don't let your head stick up yeah. in a group. You know, don't look like, um, don't be the guy that says, oh, I can do that. I'm really good at that, because you, you instantly have a group of people in the room. They're almost like with invisible scissors. You're the poppy that stood up. We just need to cut you down. Mm -hmm. How can we humble you? Because mm -hmm. you obviously need that. <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously pride. I don't know. You're the Kiwi. Is, am I? Yes, you're summing that up very well. Yep. <laughs> However, we would we would probably compliment ourselves a little more on that attitude. Yeah. But it, in this, in certain situations, it does look like someone has too much pride and we need to bring you back down to earth. But in other contexts, that could just be confidence in your ability, which could be fairly healthy as well. So we accidentally cut both those things off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's okay to be confident if you're confident of the group. If you're bringing your group up, mm -hmm. your your fano or your workplace or your class or whatever it is, if you're bringing the group up, that's very um, okay. That's mm -hmm. fine. But don't you sort of stand up too much mm -hmm. um, because there is um, the need 
to sort of bring you down. And um, I'm struggling to know where I was going with that. We, we took a tangent. We're doing this a little bit. We're taking tangents. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, I know where I was going with that. That one thing that really concerns me in New Zealand is the amount of non-New Zealand leaders. You, if you watch your TV news reports, you'll often hear voices with um, English accents, South African accents, American accents, and even the Irish accents. <laughs> and for me, I wonder if this combination of not allowing someone to grow in their potential or be afraid to grow. Let's say it's not that nobody's not, not permitting it, but they're maybe making the person afraid to excel and to do really well could also be inhibiting New Zealanders taking leadership positions. And that concerns me because I think the culture of New Zealand is vulnerable to who's in leadership. Mm. And I I would like to see many more of those positions with New Zealand accents. Mm, that's a very powerful insight. And I don't know if a lot of New Zealanders will pick up on that mm. unless they've been overseas and spent um, quite a bit of time working under different structures and then come back to see that. So I, I haven't heard that before, but now that you've said it, I can see it very clearly. So, yeah, that's very insightful. And New Zealand does group leadership very well. Yes. Now, not the, uh, what they call the old sort of great man, charismatic leader necessarily, although you have a few of those around. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're kind of unavoidable. They're part of every culture. But there's a, a great sense of the team together and different people being given leadership opportunities within the team Mm -hmm. which is a great way to lead but there's also this stepping aside and allowing these other voices to come in and take leadership so and i'm i'm a foreigner saying this i'm a non-new zealander saying this Mm -hmm. Mm. a non-new zealander in a position of leadership yeah yes but maybe it's something we need to hear for a while and i think that you're doing a particularly good job of ushering people through so Yes. That's what I'd like. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of get out of the way yeah. in that sense. I'd like mm-hmm. to see New Zealanders take ownership of, yeah. of these areas. Mm. That's good to hear. So what has been a particularly defining moment of your journey um, of becoming a New Zealander? Was there like a moment or a collection of moments where you gradually felt yourself becoming an insider rather than an outsider looking in? I don't know. I I don't know if I'm there yet and I don't know if that's my place to take or my place to be given. Mm-hmm. I would I would be apprehensive of presuming on that place mm. if, if that makes sense mm-hmm. because that's yeah, that could be a little bit overstating where I'm at at the mm-hmm. moment. How many years have you been here now? A total of 10. Okay. Mm-hmm. A total of 10. Mm. Um so I, I want to invest in um, New Zealand, New Zealanders, and I want to encourage and promote spaces for healthy growth and dialogue. Um, but I guess I still wouldn't regard myself as a New Zealander. Oh, no. I, 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 as I say, I think I've become more Irish here. <laughs> and um, I've had quite a number of people say to me, the Irish are just European Maori. And a, a, a number of Maori have said that to me, and I'm like, I'll take that. Yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> so that that doesn't and that doesn't say let go of where you've come from and who you are. It actually says know that story well, enjoy your rootedness in where you've come from and who you are, and then flourish here. But you, I, I find that I have been encouraged more to know my own story. 
while I've been here. So that's probably why I've become more Irish. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you are definitely Irish. <laughs> that didn't sound like a compliment. No, it's definitely a compliment. There are definitely things that we see as a college where um, where your, your Irishness comes out a lot, but it's good. It oh. helps with the cross-cultural um, understandings. Um, so you... I. From what I've heard of your story um, in past conversations, you uh, have done quite a good job of being able to step into the Māori culture and also the European New Zealand culture. Would you have any any insight to share about um, the sort of the way they mix or the way that they do not mix that as an outsider you've seen and a hope for how we may fuse together better in the future? Mm. From your perspective, yeah, I, 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 need to be careful. I don't come sounding at all critical because mm. I actually think New Zealand um, is making way more progress mm. in some of these areas than other countries. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to talk to New Zealand and, and all that they're doing, support that journey. There's there's good things happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let me let me just backtrack a little bit to the European mindset that I saw. A, coming into Afghanistan, because that's less pointed. Um, And one of the things I saw when I was the HR director and watching new team members coming in, you could tell in their eyes when they arrived at the airport, they were were very keen to get started and things were going to change and they, they wanted to get in and get involved and get fixing things. And I found myself trying to calm them down and I would say, ooh, slow down. Um... That you're not going to fix this country. You, you individually are not going to fix this country. You're going to build relationships with the people in front of you. And that's what you need to do. But they had a, the European mindset is, for better or worse, is actually a fix-it mindset. How can I solve something? Here's the problem. How can I fix it? And that's, that's really helpful in lots of areas. But in, in relational areas, it's not so helpful because it's impeded by things it can't fix. Because if you can't fix a thing, well, then you don't want to get involved with it. And for some with the European mindset here in New Zealand, unpacking the history of what happened here, well, you can't fix it. You can't rewind it. You can't go back. So what's the point? I see. Mm. So the, the fix-it mindset, which is actually an asset in certain areas, is impeding the ability to sit down and just hear the stories and allow somebody to share a painful story with you that you can't fix. And that I, I, that's what I see. I see a, a, a one group of people who have a lot of pain, mamai, in their hearts about the history of what's going on here, and they they want to share their story. And you've got another group of people, and this isn't everybody by any means, who know that they can't fix it. So what's the point of hearing it? Yeah. Mm, that's very insightful. And it sort of uh, leads to an impasse unless people can purposefully step over that discomfort mm. and sit in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to think of conversations I've had in the past. And I can actually number them on one hand where I've purposely sat with um, a Māori person because I'm European, mm. um, European New Zealand, um, and where I've sat with a Māori person and just listened to what they had to say and just sat in the discomfort of the fact that I am very European and I can't do anything to right the massive wrong. Um, 
yeah but at the same time I can also take that idea of looking at the people in front of me and impacting them in, in, a, in a direct way in a very personal way but I can't fix the whole issue so we just have to hope that enough of us do have that attitude of just looking at the people in front of us and maybe there will be some change Underneath that, it's interesting you sort of mentioned that. I was at a, a hui a few weeks ago over in the Marae in um, East Cape. And you could feel this tension in the room because there was a lot of Maori and European New Zealanders, the Pakeha, in, in this big Farinui, this big meeting room. And, and you had a storyteller. You had someone there telling you stories of the past and what had happened. And you could feel the tension. And the tension was there... Um, internally, because you could actually hear when they actually voiced it, the Europeans were really struggling with some kind of mixed up guilt of the past. Mm. And and the Maori there were doing everything they could to stop them feeling like that. And they, they were telling the story, but saying, this is the story of our ancestors. We're not saying this so that you will feel bad. This is the story of our Tipuna. This is our ancestors. Tell us the story of yours. And good and bad. And it's interesting because I watched um, Maori tell the story of their ancestors. Some of them did terrible things and they told us about them anyway. Mm. But they didn't tell about that with shame or with apology. It just was what it was. And you could almost say to them, you could see them encouraging the group, tell your story of your ancestors, good and bad. Don't be afraid of it. You don't need to sit and dishonour them. You don't need to call them all sorts of negative things, but tell their story. And that's, I, I think there's a mismatch there in expectations. So we don't need to fix the past. We can't fix the past. We must look to the future. But the, the Maori, Whakatoki, Kamua, Kamuri, we need to look back in order to move forward. And I think we all see that's a bit true in any culture. If you don't learn from your lessons of the past, you really are doomed to make them again. So mm. I think there's a lot to learn, is it? There's a rich storehouse of stories in this country. Mm -hmm. mm. Whew, it's a lot to take in, but it makes a lot of sense. All right, we can do a slight pivot. So you're heading up East West College, which is based in Gordonton, New Zealand, for those people that don't know where Gordonton is. It's 20 minutes out of Hamilton, um, and you're heading this up with your wife, Joyce. Tell us a little about it and what you do there. Okay, um, uh, as you said, Joyce and I lead this together. It's a co-leadership role. And it is a college that is preparing people, Christians, to work in other cultures, partly by unpacking their worldview through living in international community and realizing not all, the whole world thinks like me. And you don't even know what you think like until you have something to contrast it with. So part of the community living is to give a contrast uh, and then work that out. So where the college here has an impact in terms of training people to take that step out of their own cultures a little bit more prepared to learn from the new culture they go to. Mm. Um, we equip people with, with theological training, so biblical training, theology, and um, pastoral care, different aspects that they're going to need. But I think we'd all agree here at the college, the key is the people learn to examine their own worldview and the worldview of others before they step into the pressure of a cross-cultural living situation where they're, where they're having to make it work in another language and maybe with their family and with an international team. 
And we've often heard that these international teams can be more pressure than the local people. Mm. And then if you feel that pressure, then you can isolate yourself from support structures. That's not helpful. So if you can healthily relate to the other internationals on your team, then you can actually support one another better and reduce conflict, reduce unnecessary isolation. Mm. And as a student who came in with a very cynical attitude about it, so uh, so me and my husband were asked to attend the college as part of prerequisite of leaving the country and doing this ourselves. And to be honest, we were really cynical about the need to, to sort of leave our house and our job and come out and do full-time study in what we thought was a bubble. But I'm starting to understand that the bubble, there is a bubble, but it's not the kind of bubble I thought. So the, the bubble I thought is that a whole bunch of Christians living in one sort of community creates like a very introspective, self-interested bubble. But what you've got here is a purposeful bubble set to create a cross-cultural interaction. And so I still think there is a little bit of a bubble, but the purpose is good. It's like a greenhouse rather than a fortress. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we came in, we sort of thought we were leaving everything to hop inside this Christian fortress Mm -hmm. to learn some things. And then we were going to have to go back out into the world and readapt. But it's almost like you've set the greenhouse temperature at something more similar to what we will experience Mm -hmm. out in the world. Uh, and we are having to adjust what we what we think and expect of other people, and we're learning what it is about our own characters that we could sort of put in a little box, like maybe mm. we don't need that mm. in the greenhouse, and oh, we'll definitely need this, let's heat that up, or let's get that functioning better. So, yeah, we've got a couple more months, but I think it has been very challenging, but I am starting to understand the good in it, which mm. um, obviously took a longer longer journey for me to come round to than a lot of people that attend but I think it has been good and you have sort of fostered that um, that growth here which has been very very good um, so what are some of the key attitudes that you are coming across in the students that um, that seem to be helpful on their journey that you are able to encourage what are some of the good things that you're noticing in in students especially in this generation or in these in the in the last two or three years mm. that you've spotted that are good for that journey yeah, I think what I, I enjoy, I enjoy sort of millennial Gen Z's uh, approach to global interaction in terms of social media and and an awareness of, of global situations. Now, that awareness may not go very deep at times. You're kind of aware of places, aware of issues, but any of us can only go so deep on so many issues. Mm. But there is certainly... I see across cultures, there is a connection. So I'm, I'm sort of starting to see people from very different cultures, but the same generation almost have more in common with each other across their generation mm. than they do with the traditional older elements of their own cultures. Mm-hmm. And that can be quite exciting. If you get that kind of dynamic going, then an international team has a great opportunity to thrive because the starting points are closer and there's more overlap in the starting points. If all the people are aged the same. Like if we ha- if, if a younger millennial Gen Z was to be in a team with an older person from a different culture or even an older person from their own culture, are they just as adaptable with that? Well, let's say the default, I would say the default with millennials and Gen Z are one, are, are attend that way. But there are others of the older generation who could have that mindset and actually do quite well. 
um, or could just get frustrated and not do so well. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's a, it has to be a, just a one generational team because I think there's a lot of learning that can go on through multi-generational teams. Um, and so you're almost doing that cross-cultural thing of between generations and you're probably doing that yourself even here in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, even here in this room. <laughs> <laughs> cheeky. Um, but if, if, we can, if, if we can value the whole of our community and I think that's one thing in Te Ao Māori they do particularly well, is the concept of Kamatua right down to Tamariki. It just, it's there, that's who we are in Te Ao Māori, or who they are in Te Ao Māori. If we could nurture that, I'd like to see the strengths of each generation celebrated rather than silo off in generations. Mm. Yep, that sounds great. That sounds very holistic. And something that I struggle with personally also is to like... Uh, we're so independent and individual that it takes genuine effort and and doing it on purpose to uh, respect or or put aside time for people that are older, mm -hmm. um, and actually listen to what they have to say without writing it off. Mm -hmm. Especially because things move so quickly that we just think that they're way in the back there, but their insight is genuinely valuable still. We did a we did a short stint of homeschooling, and it's only been a very short stint, <laughs> um, a matter of months. Um, way back and I did a whole thing on the Second World War and uh, we had posters and maps and videos and books and all that I went to town on this thing Amazon did very well out of that season and I had some friends up in Belfast who lived through the Second World War and what I did is I primed the kids with all sorts of questions and things that they could talk about and then I primed these visitors with uh, getting them to get ready stories about certain areas and sort of set up the two sides of the conversation and then just watch my kids talk to people in their 70s about the war. And it was a very engaged, long conversation. They had lots to ask and lots to do. Um, and I'm so glad that happened. I'm so glad that my kids got to hear those stories and got to sit with these, these amazing women who'd lived through the war and who remembered like the planes going off the cliffs of, uh, flying away over the cliffs of Dover, mm. off into Germany and then coming back. Yeah. I mean, amazing things to have seen, but to actually have the opportunity to sit with people and hear their stories. Mm. Maybe we need to facilitate more of these conversations in our, in our cross-cultural awareness, um, yeah, intergenerationally, like, like priming both sides and teaching them what they could learn from each other or what they could share and then just watch that mm. conversation unfold. That could be actually quite beautiful. Whew. So um, what are some of the um, attitudes that you've seen in the past or that you're currently seeing that could possibly hinder a cross-cultural um, journey? Uh, are you talking about, in a sense, a graduate from here going to live in another culture? Or yeah, or even just some experiences that you might have had in the different countries where people came into your team or into your friend circle or around the people that you knew and you just noticed that they weren't quite being able to like fit into the culture very well. What were some of the hindrances in, mm. in that? And yes, also, what are some of the things that graduates might be doing where they're not quite fitting? I think, I guess it's something that's come up here in New Zealand is know your identity, know who you are. Um, because wherever you go, there you are. And if you don't know who you are, if you don't have a sense of your your person and your identity, stepping into another culture, it can go really wrong. It can go really badly. You can give up all of who you are and adopt the local culture, but you will always be a foreigner in a sense. Mm. Um, Role-playing, 
and that can often be what it looks like. Um, it's okay to grow into that space, but to do that because the, lo the host culture has more sense of its identity than you do isn't a healthy journey. I've seen people go into culture shock and they've locked themselves in their rooms and they wouldn't relate to people around them because their culture shock was so great they didn't know how to handle it. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think appreciate where you're coming from. Mm. Know that story. And don't think it's superior to the story you're going to. But equally, don't think it's inferior. Mm. You've got a story. You've got a journey. And I, I, I think that's when it doesn't go well. I see people that just haven't figured out who they are. Mm. Mm. So what is, um, as, we, as we close off the podcast today, what is one key piece of advice that you want to share with people who may be listening, who are interested in, in um, taking an extra step or another step in becoming more aware of the different cultures that we will come up mm. against on a daily rate? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> This just sounds horribly marketing and I'm not a marketing person. I just don't do that that well. But taking an intentional step of living in a community like this and studying in a community like this, allowing yourself to be both stretched and constrained at the same time um, allows you to process what that could look like in a much more pressurised environment where the stakes are much higher. Once you've actually got on a plane and moved cross-culturally, the stakes are higher. You've got to succeed. It's got to work. Mm. Um, this is a great opportunity to be stretched and grown in this space. So I, I, I would actually say this is an ideal thing to do before you would go cross-culturally if you want that to go well, if mm. you want that to work out mm. better. Mm -hmm. Well, that has been my experience, so I would also endorse that. Um, and I think there are definitely more subtle ways you can do that in your daily life where you purposely put yourself in relationship with people who maybe aren't the same culture as you and maybe uh, English is their second language and just learning how to be mm. with those people mm. and do it well. Um, well, thank you for joining us as our first guest Yay. on the podcast today. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Cool. Thank you. It's been fun.